Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is brought to you by Kim Power, the reliable, quick, and scalable EV charging solutions for everyone and everywhere. And StarCharge, the largest EV charging manufacturer in the world and is also a provider of residential and commercial battery storage. Working in this space that is pushing how we electrify most parts of our lives and especially how we get around, I pay close attention to the news, but also the perception of those around me when it comes to EVs, renewable energies, and the like. I often hear skeptics questioning the ability of our grid to handle the impending EV revolution, naysayers or just curious folk really raise their concerns wondering if our power infrastructure is ready for the surge of EVs on our roads. And this is a topic that I find especially interesting and one that we are going to dive into today with a wonderfully experienced guest. Welcome back to the Out of Spec podcast. I'm your host, Francie. And today I am joined by the one and only Dan Bowermaster, head of the Electric Vehicle Research Program at EPRI or EPRI, as I learned that y'all call it, which is a nonprofit and independent research organization, aka the Electric Power Research Institute. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dan. Uh, thanks for having me here, Francie. Look forward to the discussion. Me too. I, I really do find this space uh, so curious, especially because there's a lot of opinions, which there's always opinions really when it comes to <laughs> topics of electric vehicles and electrifying things. So first to familiarize our audience and myself with your background, I would love for you to just give me a quick summary of your background, how you got to EPRI, and then of course your work there and how it relates to your current role. Sure. So as a kid, I always loved cars and you know, studied engineering in college and got to intern at a BMW factory. And then at Porsche R&D in college was kind of a dream come true. And then, you know, Worked in uh, worked in manufacturing for about seven years, then went to grad school. And after grad school, ended up at, at Pacific Gas and Electric on the West Coast. Um, and my last stint there was running their uh, electric vehicle natural gas program, natural gas vehicle program, which is right around the time when the Nissan Leaf and the Chevy Volt launched. So we got the utility already for that. Um, moved over to EPRI about 12 years ago uh, to join their um, electric transportation team. And EPRI itself, most people have never heard of. We've been around for more than 50 years. As you said, we're a nonprofit group. We kind of do uh, we do research, applied research on the grid from where electricity is made to how it's used. Um, again, for the good of society, um, our group, Electric Transportation, has been around for, gosh, we're on our 34th year now. And if you're thinking, well, electric cars weren't around 34 years ago, you're exactly right. So we do everything from forklifts to seaport cranes uh, to obviously you know cars and trucks and things that go. Everything from vehicle co-development, although as time is passing, you know, there's less of that, to you know, charging station, uh, grid integration, environmental economic analysis, et cetera. And one of the, one of the great things about working at EPRI is you know, there's, a, there's a department that's an expert on grid planning. There's a department that's an expert on transmission. There's a department that's expert on batteries. So we work with a lot of great people here at the Institute, as well as across the just entire electric vehicle industry. Uh, that is Amazing. And it, it is surprising, you know, been around for five decades and perhaps aren't super, super known in the space. But obviously you have 
you know, your hands in a lot of the really important jars here. And it's, it is important to remember that, yeah, the first electric vehicles maybe weren't the passenger ones, but still an important part of the electric vehicle mm, evolution, revolution, whatever you want to call it, especially as we work towards minimizing the greenhouse gases that are emitted by, you know, ICE cars, internal combustion engine cars. So your role there is the head of the electric vehicle research program, right? So what does that mean? What are you heading? So our mission is to electrify transportation for the good society as, as quickly as possible. And what that has really evolved into, I mean, I touched on some of the other kind of historical things, is that we are looking at what is needed to get EVs to scale uh, again, as quickly as possible, you know, there's state and federal goals, you know, the 50% sales by 2030, et cetera, and really helping, you know, I think the major focus right now across the industry and especially at EPRI is how do we, what data and facts are needed in order to give certainty to industry leaders and regulators to allow for specific grid investment ahead of time, such that the grid will be ready. It's a common, or maybe uncommon, but sometimes you'll hear over Thanksgiving dinner or something like, hey, the grid's not ready for EVs or the grid's going to, you know, EVs going to crash the grid. And that's, that's, that's typical, but it's not really how it's going to work. It's more about how do you, how do you quickly get the grid ready at, at minimal cost? At the end of the day, you know, cost to invest in the grid, that comes back to the rates that we all pay. So yes, one answer is to go out and reinforce everywhere on the grid, but that takes time and that takes money. And that's, that's a solution, probably not the best one. <laughs> <laughs> How cool. Yes. One part of the work that you do that um, I think is really important is that you're nonprofit and independent because there's a lot of, you know, you could say that people have agendas or different motivations and to have research coming from a an unbiased source, an independent source, I think is really important. There's a, a nonprofit profit newspaper, for instance, where uh, my hometown is Memphis, and it's called the Daily Memphian. And that's really a part of what they push because no one's paying for them to cover any certain news or not cover news because when you're trying to you know, go after your certain mission or goals or really un objectively inform the public or inform decision makings, it's really important to have your independence. So I would imagine that that really plays into the work that you do and why folks would partner with you. Is that true? Yeah, that's exactly spot on. Like we don't, we don't do any lobbying, which actually makes regulators and other government staff want to talk to us more. And we'll never say, oh, do policy A versus do policy B. Well, if someone asks us like, well, what, you know, about a certain topic, we'll talk about the research that we've done or the research that somebody else has done and what, what were the data and kind of results from that. But again, we'll never, we'll never lobby for one or the other. Interesting. Okay, good to know. You hear that, audience? So maybe <laughs> let's start with painting a broad picture of utilities and the EV transition. From what you've seen, do utilities generally support the EV transition? Well, it's definitely a, a huge opportunity for the entire utility industry. I mean, it's been, you know, this last major up, uptick in load has been kind of goes back to air conditioning, different forms of industrialization. And this this goes back again to, you know, the status quo we're all used to, you know, the the grid really came into being in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, you know, some of the 60s, and there was just major growth year after year, decade after decade. And then there were several decades of, of what one might call semi, you know, kind of semi either low or flat growth. So what we're all used to in our lifetime is, is, is low growth. But here, you know, this, this electrification load, and it's not just electric transportation electrification load, it's also from buildings and other you know, industrial forms that are also electrifying. This is the, the first major uptick in load that a lot of the utilities have seen in a long time. Now, that being said, utilities are really good at, you know, doing everything they need to do from all parts of the kind of the grid to make sure enough electricity is generated and moved around. Now, there are complications to that and, you know, how quickly, and again, it goes back to cost, you know, we, we or the industry can do, uh, you know, build new transmission lines or that sort of thing, but definitely it's one of the biggest, um, it's a change. It's a change in industry. But for those who have been around a long time, they kind of smile because like, well, this is how it used to be. <laughs> mm -hmm. Totally. So uh, do you, so utilities, you see that there's a clear opportunity for them, but there is a, a cost to that opportunity. Right. And so what have you noted that utilities need to do to support the EV transition? Is it more about information? Is it truly building out the grid? Is it, I don't know, regulation and policies? What are the major factors? Well, there's a there's <laughs> how much time do we have? There's there's <laughs> multiple there's multiple there's multiple challenges. Uh, the good news, 
is that at least on the you know kind of individual personal vehicles um and this kills me as a, as a car guy the cars sit around and there's data on this 20 plus hours a day so there's actually quite a bit of like call it parking time to plug in it's like your smartphone right you know we, i don't think very few of us think about how long it takes to charge our smartphone we just know it chargers must sit in there at our office desk or on the kitchen counter or what have you overnight or whatever you need. and that's kind of how cars are so it's about how do you how do you do that last 10 feet how do you get charging um to the cars now our european friends they're dealing with they're already at you know what we would call you know 240 volts here in the states they're, they're close to that so they already have like their household voltage is already at, at an advantage mm-hmm. but the bottom line is how do you how do you do that 120 volt 240 volt um charging to make it easier on customers where their cars are parked whether it's home or you know or work or etc now where it gets challenging is you know, for the, I'm sure we can all think of the road trip example, or if you're on the business side, if you have a fleet, and then the example that's often held up is the kind of like either regional trucking or long haul trucking, you know, coast to coast. My grandpa used to be a truck driver. I get it. Um, you know, those are, those are point challenges, but again, like it's easy to forget that utilities provide electricity right now to customers like that. Now it might be a building or a housing development or a factory, but utilities are used to providing big loads in certain locations. Again, it's, it's more of a question of timing. So that's, Understanding how and where customers are going to go and charge, as well as you know, kind of companies' plans, is the first one of the first major steps to understanding. Okay, where should utilities, um, you know, invest and in, and in, in, uh, harden the grid? Hmm. Interesting. So, would they work with the like? How would they gain that information? Is it they independently gather it? Is it stuff from you know organizations like you? Is it charge point operators being like, this is where we see utilization, where we're going to put in a site and focusing in on that? It's all the above. Um, there are great models out there. You know, the national labs have models. There's public data on travel data and things like that. Uh, one of our major efforts right now is the EVs to scale project, which includes everything from the truck makers to major fleets to major utilities looking at how do you on one hand, confidentially get um, specific um, investment plans for those different groups I just mentioned, such that utilities can then check their grid. And, and the reason why is, again, it comes down to the feeder level. So kind of think of in gross terms, like, you know, your neighborhood, your neighborhood series of wires and poles, that sort of thing, but, you know, might serve an industrial park or things like that. So how do, how do utilities know, thanks to like information from the major fleets and trucking companies, which of those to invest in and when and, and how much, right? So that's that's the challenge, right? There's tons of models out there. And models are great at the very high level. They're they're great for like how much electricity do we need to generate and how much do we need to move around. But when it comes down to like, you know, city, county, kind of like your local, your local, your local investment plan, that's where this detailed data comes in. And again, like you got to protect everything from in- individual privacy to you know any kind of business information. But that's that's what this large you know EVs to scale effort really gets at. Mm, okay, that's a, a cool project that you have going on, and I'd love to hear about more. And it makes me think of um, something that I was reading about, but of course, this space requires a lot of standardization, and we're not even, you know, done with it. I mean, it's still very much in progress. We are very much a work in progress. So has your work had anything to do with the standards that we see in charging? And um, if so, how? Yeah, so first thing grossly epri does not do standards that being said due to our reputation the industries meaning the vehicle industry and the utility industry asked folks on our team to chair uh various various standards committees i'm sure many of your audience has heard of j1772 there's a gentleman on our team who chairs that um we're also involved in everything from the like the wireless charging to the you know the the truck and bus overhead charging standards so we participate and lead a variety of SAE standard committees, we're involved in cybersecurity, that sort of thing. Again, most people just want to know that that stuff works. Um, but yeah, so we're heavily involved in standards. Uh, but again, it's it's more as the referee and not as like saying, oh, do this or do that. And we all, we can talk more about fast charging and adapters and Macs and whatever, whatever you think is interesting to your. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all interesting. It's just making me think like, I want to keep this like a, a nice broad overview, but it would yeah. be great because we could have, you know, a whole conversation about adapters, a whole conversation, I mean, a whole conversation about yeah. all the different parts, which I was talking to Kyle about earlier um, because he was like, oh man, I wish I could uh, participate in that, but we'll just have to have Dan on again. I was like, okay, for sure. I haven't even met him yet, but it sounds good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so uh, I have a question. Can the, can the grid as we know it now support EVs? If everyone switched, 
I mean, not today. I know that's the answer, but like in 2030, the National Renewable Energy Lab has estimated like 30 to 42 million light duty vehicles on the road will be EVs. I don't know what projections y'all are looking at, but can the grid as we know it now support that? Yeah, so the, I would say the grid and the process that lets the grid change over time would support that. I mean, really grossly, these are gross estimations. If every vehicle big and small was electrified overnight, the grid would have to get between 35 and 40% bigger. Mm. Now, the good news is that that won't happen overnight, mm. um, which gives the utilities enough time to plan and adjust and you know the whole stakeholder process to work itself out. Now, that being said, there's going to be points, in, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, where like, you know, some fleet, you know, there's different fleets that are that are being more aggressive than others. So that's that's where the, the challenge comes in is is the transition. But grossly speaking, it's it's within and again, if you, looking historically, the grid's grown at that rate in decades past. Now it might have been not 10 years ago, you might have to go back 30, 40 years, but no, mm-hmm. it's all it's all within the realm of of um I'd call business as usual. Okay. So as utilities are going along with making this change, which it seems like, you know, come along or you're gonna be left behind. There's no choice really, right? They have to adapt. Yeah, I mean, utilities are responsible for serving their load that their customers ask for. So it's exactly. how it works. <laughs> okay, good, good. I mean, because that's great. And I know that some of the systems that they have are outdated from the different businesses that I've seen out there working to help utilities catch up and update, whether it's their softwares or their strategies or whatever. But are utilities focusing more? Do you think they're like, okay, we have to quickly adapt to meet the fleet or the passenger vehicles? Or is it a mix? It's a mix. It really kind of depends on the, you know, the, the size and scope of the utilities and where the utilities are at. You know, some, some utilities are, you know, have a mix of customers, some r- rural, some urban, some suburban, some have more than the other, some have more industrial, something like that. I, th- I would, I would say in my experience, um, looking back, the initial concern when the vehicles first came out was the, was the light duty ones. I mean, first of all, there weren't many, you know, kind of commercial or industrial or, uh, vehicles out there yet. And so it was a concern. And then, and what it's kind of come down to is, you know, that the the Teslas or Fords or Chevys or Nissan's electric vehicles, they're all largely like air conditioners. I mean, that's mm-hmm. again, that's a gross comparison. But they move around and where they're yeah. going to charge. And at least I'll speak for myself. Like I'm much more emotionally attached to my car than I am if I had an air conditioner. Um, so there's that <laughs> emotional piece that that we don't have to our air conditioner, or hot water, you know, our heat pump or what have you. Mm-hmm. So there's that. So I, I wouldn't say that it that the um, so I'd say utilities are far less concerned about the uh, the residential vehicle load. Now there are some questions as the vehicles get bigger and the onboard charging levels increase. Uh, um, you know, what's that going to have? Also, you know, what's how will the behavior of the mass market reflect or not reflect the behavior of the early adopters? Where we found like things like, you know, if it's cheaper, if you, a utility offers a rate where it's cheaper to charge at night, most many electric vehicle, at least the early adopters, would take advantage of that. It's unknown. It's unclear if if the mass market will or won't, and what that means for the grid. It's more about these kind of like the fleet specific loads that are that are showing up. And again, you know, they're high powers. They're big. They're big numbers. And again, very few people think in terms of megawatts or megawatt hours. You know, we can think about a gallon of gas, and that's kind of that's kind of about it for most yeah. normal people. But the point is, like, despite the big numbers, or you'll see like, oh, this transit bus yard is equivalent as a skyscraper. Or, you know, this you know, truck stop is equivalent of that small town or, you know, whatever the, whatever the comparison is. Like, I think the important thing to remember is like, yeah, those are big loads and big numbers, but it, they're all loads that utilities serve equivalents of today. So it's, again, it's nothing, we're not talking about having to create some magic grid. It's more about thoughtfully and quickly expanding the grid we have. Mm-hmm. Thoughtful and quick. And I'm sure that does require a lot of collaboration. And when I think about how the utilities sector is in the US, it's regulated, right? It's a regulated market versus like in Europe or the UK, which is it's it's not. Do you know the specific differences that especially I think a lot of our audience is in the US, but um, to draw like just maybe briefly draw the difference with what might be more of a challenge in our market than in others? Yeah. So first of all, in the US, there's about 3,300 different utilities. Yeah. So there's just a big number to begin with. Um, and then, yeah, there's, you know, three or four basically different flavors. There's there's ones that are owned by the investors, you know, uh, um, the, the big ones, usually the bigger ones, that's like Duke and, um, you know, Exelon and PG&E, et cetera, Southern California Edison. 
uh, and those are regulated, you know, they have state regulators. So, um, the regulators are obviously independent. And then there's ones that are more governed by their, um, they're more, they're called municipal utilities or munis and they're governed by their, their like city council almost LADWP, SMUD, um, SRP, things like that. Um, and then there's ones that are owned by their customers and that might cause people to scratch their head, but that's, that's probably not really rural ones. Um, that you know farmers or or, or whoever like you know it, it's the actual people that are that are kind of the own, own and operate their their own you know tri-state and it's co-ops are a good example of that i mean that's sorry that's getting a bit nuanced but the, the point is that and then there's ones that are like semi-government you know like tva and, and bonneville and and whether they serve the end customer or if you know there's there's like a distribution utility in between them that's regional so again i, I probably lost 98% of your audience, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the gross, the gross division of, of um, yes. utilities in North America and you're right in Europe. It's different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's important to note because I mean, there are so many different entities that have to have their own approach. So it's not, you know, a blanket approach for everyone. There's different ways that they're owned and managed and that is a challenge in itself. So I just wanted to kind of note that complexity, whether or not you understand all the ways that, utilities can be owned and run and ran, you know, there, it's, there's multiple ways throughout your different states and regions. Yeah. One thing, of course, that I want to consider is that kind of what we talked about at the beginning is that utilities have so much to benefit from by uh, just moving into how to adapt to the EVs on the road, whether it's fleet or passenger. So just in case folks don't know, because it is complicated, but how does the money flow work, especially if, you know, it's always, how are you going to make some revenue, right? How are we going to keep this business model running when it comes down to most everything in our world? So it, it do how do utilities make money off of charging? I know it's expensive for charge point operators to put these chargers in. Sometimes they lose money when you charge, actually. So there's things like risk to the CPOs, but also risk to the utilities maybe. And I know this maybe will incorporate, maybe you'll mention demand charges or often on peak times, but can you kind of explain that <laughs> a little bit? Oh, sure. So um, utilities make money in different ways. We talked about the structure in the very beginning. So the simplest version is a utility. There's some utilities who are just like any other company. The more, the more of their product they sell, the more money they make. So that's one yeah. bucket of utilities. The next bucket of utilities aren't like that your your audience is either probably already scratching their head or they stood up and got a cup of coffee or something but the point <laughs> is is that they are actually incentivized to sell less of their less electricity and, yeah. and you're like well how does that make sense well how they make money is they put together a two or three year plan and they present to their regulators and they basically say hey regulators we expect in the next three years to sell this much electricity and includes this much rate of return to the the stockholders if they're a you know investor-owned utility and it's going to take this much for our operations. And then, you know, there's this much for inflation and maintenance and yada, yada, yada. So that's, that's the other form. And then that's for the two investor forms of investor owned utilities. And then for the ones that are owned by either like the city governments or the ones that are owned by like kind of the rural members, those ones try to break even every year. So they only mm. charge as much for electricity as it takes to cover their costs. So in all of those models, it's just important to remember that everyone is trying to minimize their costs as much as possible. So that's another great thing about electric vehicles is again, because most of them, again, not all, but most sit around so much is you can actually delay charging to times when there already is X, it's called excess grid capacity, but basically there aren't other, you know, middle of the night, basically for most, most, most times, yeah. most, you know, most of us are asleep, not everyone. So that's the idea is that you can, you can move more electricity through the system uh, using call it either the, the system of today or minimally investing in the system. And that's how utilities either quote unquote make money if that's their business model or for the ones that are municipal, like how they keep costs down is basically, you know, you, you, you move more product through your existing system. So your benefits increase and your costs are either zero or not zero, but you know, no. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So then <laughs> what, what does that mean about the relationship between these utilities that have this structure, this kind of goal and the charge point operators that are putting in the infrastructure, buying the energy from the utilities, selling it to their customers, that interaction? Yeah. So, I mean, there's different, it's state by state on how that's all regulated. Um, but, you know, grossly speaking, you know, the, the, the private network operators are just like any other customer. They buy the electricity. 
um, from the utility at you know standard rates that we all pay, and then either depending on the regulatory structure, they either can they have flexibility in what they set the pricing as, or they have to basically pass through the electricity cost. Now, just like other businesses, they can add on services to that. You know, if 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 that's part of their business model, you know, think of everything from like a parking fee to a you get a special spot at the front of the. You know, there's different ways to kind of slice and dice this. Um, in addition, some of the private network companies obviously have the data as part of their business model and how they use that is it's unclear to me. Um, but you know, the, the charging data and all that, just like the grocery store and everything, you know, it's, it's a lot mm-hmm. about customer data too. So there's companies that look at that part of the, the customer here, but that's, that's, you know, well beyond the utility scope. That's, that's the private industry. Mm-hmm. Do you have an idea of which of the public charge point operators are, seem to be working best with utilities to expand their infrastructure? From that relationship side, I mean, the utilities and the the private networks, and, you know, there's like the big six and then there's a bunch more, mm-hmm. um, have worked well. And then, you know, just like we saw with solar, like as, as these technologies scale up that there's process, there's processes that, um, work really well to a certain point and then they need to need to change and things like that. So I think from the I mean, I would ask, I would ask the private charging state because they're the actually <laughs> on the customer into that. But, you yeah. know, I do know they have worked, you know, that going back to the, you know, like the, 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 the Ecotality and Coulomb and Better Place days, you know, they've been working, they've been working with the utilities for, you know, going back, you know, 14, 15 years now. And some yeah. even go back to the nineties, even longer than that. Long relationships. And, <laughs> you know, I, I know that, um, I mean, I used to be a part of a, public infrastructure team and just the, I mean, the relationships you're right that you have with utilities that can obviously like help having worked with them and knowing how they work, but it is regional. I mean, the utilities have to go through all of their processes to get your site permitted and up and running and all of the things that it needs. And that can usually be what is keeping a site from going live in a short amount of time, because maybe you can get it all in there, but actually getting power to the site that's a whole story and of course that depends on location and everything which you know i'd love to touch on i don't know about this podcast but you know again it's like (laughs) you know the differences between the urban setting small town and in the middle of nowhere and how how that can differ and whether it's uh, intuitive or not so maybe let's move to level two charging so level two ev charging is from projections i've seen like this is going to be the majority of charging that we need to account for the EVs that are going to be on the road throughout the next decade. So what are the challenges associated with level two charging specifically from what you found in your research from a utility perspective? For for example, if a local, I know there's a lot of efforts in California to um, electrify school buses. So if a local mm-hmm. school district wanted to put in a bunch of chargers, what would stand in the way of that? So uh, there's a semi joke in the industry when it comes to, you know, charging that you install in a parking lot, whether that's for a school bus yard or for, a you know, just like your work parking lot, like dig once. So the good news is that the level, the charging related to level two in the U.S. And then I, before you kind of get to the adapter piece um, is largely due to construction. You know, it's like ripping up the parking lot, putting in conduit that sort of thing. And, 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 I mean, I'm being kind of facetious about the dig ones, but it is like, you know, oversize your conduit, which is the, you know, the pipes that the wires run through and all that kind of stuff, because by the time it gets to the stub or the charging station plugs and like, that's the bulk of the expense. Yeah. And then, and, you know, making sure you have enough, you know, on-site transformers and things like that. The actual charging box is, um, the good news. There's quite a few to pick from. They're actually quite simple when it comes to the technology. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of safety built in both, via the standards, et cetera. So that the the charging box, which is the piece that the industry that we all focused on a lot, is actually the, you know, I won't say the easy part, but it's the construction is the challenging part. And then mm-hmm. in the context of like school buses, and thankfully, you know, like the the EPA just recently released a slew, I want to say it was a billion dollars for 67 different school districts or something like that last week. Um, you know, there's money coming, but it's like school Money is tight, whether you're private business, but especially in government, especially at school. So how do you, how do you not only, you know, give them the funds to do what they need to do, but also everyone's overloaded. So how do you share expertise on and lessons learned? And that's one mm-hmm. of the roles that like, 
you know, there's a bunch of groups out there, um, but the utilities are one of the groups providing that kind of customer education to, you know, school districts. I'm like, hey, here's how you electrify a parking lot if you're trying to do schools or if you're trying to do mm-hmm. it for your teachers and staff, here's another way to do it, you know, that sort of thing. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So do you, and do you agree, like level two will be the most uh, ubiquitous kind of charging that we need to electrify our fleets, our passenger vehicles, our transportation? It- it is the foundation for many use cases uh, or for yeah. many different types of vehicles to be plain talk. Um, you know, obviously we talked about the residential charging before for many fleets, including and that was the other lesson learned. You know, just because a vehicle is big doesn't necessarily mean it needs high power charging. School was a perfect example. Goes out yeah. and back twice a day, sits around quite a bit. Yes, it's big, but it just needs to charge. We've done demonstrations with school buses across the country. Other groups have, and we found that like even kind of like a mid power level two charging station, call it. 12 kilowatts is more than sufficient. You know, you don't have mm. to do, you know, DC fast charging for school buses. There might be cases where a customer might want to do that, but it's not a, it's not a must. You're not talking about an 18 wheeler, you know, tens yeah. of thousands of pounds trying to drive from Maine to San Diego. Right. It's, it's a different use case. That's true. I think that sometimes folks can get caught up on like, Oh my gosh, well, if everything's electric, then they're going to need so much energy, but you're right. Like a lot of EVs will sit around for most part of the day, which brings me to a subject that I am, just hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Always looking to learn more about, and that's vehicle to grid or vehicle to everything technology, which is where essentially, you know, our EVs are a big battery on wheels, which means that they can store energy. They can take energy in, but also it can go the other way. That's where we hear the word bi-directional. So if you can feed it back into something else, whether it's another EV, your home, or perhaps the grid, uh, this is super, super interesting to me. So, you know, one part of this is it's great potential, right? But are we there? So how do you view vehicle to grid? Is it the future? Is it just a, a nice idea? Or is it a, really a key to making the switch to a, a heavily electric transportation system? So, you know, what, you know, I, I can't say it as a staircase. There's, you know, there's managed charging where no power falls back from the vehicle. And how do you, how do you make it easy on the customer? You know, customer gets home from work, plugs the car into their garage or outlet, whatever the charging station goes in the house and gets on with their life. And they're like all the fancy stuff in the background. As long as the car is charged by, I call it 5 a.m. on the weekends, weekdays yeah. and 7 a.m. on the weekends, like it's just done and whatever. Hey, utility and free market and all your other players involved, you do what you need to do and just adjust my charging. Again, this is all one way. As long as you, it doesn't matter if you trickle charge me or, you know, increase that or what have you. It's like the car's done mm-hmm. in the morning and that's, that's all I care about. And yes. then, yeah, you always got to give the customer to like the opt out button. Like if, you know, you're a family and the wife's pregnant or somebody's sick, you know, like there's going to be cases where it's like, I want my car charged now. And then you kind of have that optionality too, which we've, again, we've done pilots and kind of seen that, seen that. Mm. And then that leads to, um, you know, vehicle to home or vehicle to building where you're putting power back, you know, the power outage is a great example there. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm sure we've all heard stories of the electric pickup trucks, you know, providing power back. Um, And then there's, you know, vehicle to grid where the, you know, the, where the, EV is actually putting power back and it's either used locally at the distribution level or potentially even one day, like move back and done like transmission. And then there's different, again, this gets super technical, but it's not just about moving the electricity. It's also kind of like the rate that the electricity moves around and how quickly. So yes. there's, it's called balancing. I always think about it. It's like, if you have a, trying to balance like a piece of something on your finger, like that's the grid, right? Supply and demand has to be matched. So 
EVs potentially could um, play play a role there. From the technical side, it can be done today. You can move power electricity any way you need to. It's more how do you do it safely at scale and um, easy for the customer, and then in a way that everyone who's involved wins. And that's that's what these pilots and demonstrations around the world are trying to figure out. You know, what's the kind of 80-20 rule? Like, what's the mm-hmm. what are the five key things that are functions that are needed on the grid that, to like minimize cost as this scales up? And then what are the five things needed on the EV that, that are needed? And what, what's the feature set in order to make those five things on the grid happen? That's that's kind of the gist of the the V2G stuff. So like, do we have to wait for V2G to happen in order to do um, in order to have EVs at scale? No. Is it something we're looking at in parallel? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point is that it's something to consider. We don't necessarily need it, but it, it does have a lot of potential for, I mean, just capturing more energy. Um, yeah. Do you think that there will be, I mean, we also think about it in terms of impact, like, you know, if you're able to take cheap energy or renewable energy at a certain time and then put it back on the grid, all this stuff. But do you think there will be enough interoperability and vehicles cooperating to make a significant impact from this kind of technology, V to G? So that, that's the vision. Um, and we can think now, and again, it has to be easy and invisible and reliable to the customer, but it's yes. like, you can think now, I mean, it, the grid is changing and there's like, as more and more renewables come on the grid, I know you mentioned that at the beginning, it's like sun peaks, you know, in the middle of the day, you know, like lunchtime. And I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, like, you'll laugh at me here, but like free long distance calling, like free nights and weekends, you know? And it's like, mm-hmm. I can imagine a future where EV charging has like, I don't know, free lunchtime charging or cheap inexpensive because that's when the electricity is the cheapest, right? And similarly, yeah. like, again, the vision is to make all this seamless at, at the back end such that like, okay, well, if it's if it's a hot summer evening and everyone gets home and the air conditioners are cranked and like, you know, whatever, you know, whatever, pick a number. Everyone shares 10% of their battery just to kind of get, quote unquote, the grid in the neighborhood through those peak hours until it starts to cool off later at night. Right. And then you can just recharge yeah. your car. Now, again, like you got to have that optionality so people can opt out of it. You can't, yeah, that kind of thing. But again, the, the you know, private industry and the utility industry, everyone who's working on this is, is aware of those things. So that's, that's the vision. Yeah. It's like, as the grids change and the need change, like how do you match customer needs with grid needs mm-hmm. all in a way that's seamless and reliable. So it seems like this could be a great option. We technically can do it and probably will do it, but, from things that I've uh, read about and spoken to business businesses that work in this space, especially working with the utilities to one day make V to G available is that there's a lot of steps in between. And a lot of that is updating like the systems that utilities use, but also finding a value proposition, like you're saying, where the utilities can offer their customers something that is so it's like a smart home, you know, they don't have to think about it, but the utilities can benefit, the grid can benefit, but the customer like has a charge car when they need to. So what do you see that, is it is it true? I mean, like kind of what I found, which is that utilities need updates to get there. And if so, what might those be? Yeah, so there's, 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 a, there's a couple of ways to think about it, at least the ways I think about it. Like, it's like, what do we do? Call it, if we draw an alignment stand from today going forward, like what do we do for, call it new construction or fresh construction, things like that. And then what do we do for all the existing buildings and cars and infrastructure? And that's a balance, right? It's far easier to start from scratch. If you're doing something like that, than it is to like retrofit a house, retrofit an existing structure. So that's, that's the challenge. And if, you know, the social goal or societal goals are trying to electrify as quickly as possible for, you know, various reasons. And like, how do we, how do we attack those existing structures? I think one of the, you know, most challenging uh, use cases that we have here in the States and it's probably similar um, globally is like, how do you, how do you support folks who live in an apartment that don't have a dedicated parking spot? Not even an apartment, mm-hmm. just anything that's not a house that has a driveway or a right. garage of some kind. Right. So how do you, how do you support the apartments and townhomes and anybody street people who street park, you know, what are the ways to support that? Now, if you look at different corners of the world, there's been different ways to attack that. So it's not, again, it's not impossible. It's definitely a challenge. It's like, how do you, how do you support that existing, like building stock and 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 set of customers who live there that you know can't park in their garage overnight or don't don't go into work and can sit, you know sit where where their cars park eight hours a day or that sort of thing. So that's 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 I think one of the major challenges. Mm-hmm. I love it. I feel like there's always a challenge in this space in every facet, and we just keep to 
keep learning how to research and address them from what we find. Um, so of course, level two charging is really important, but also fast charging. This is a hot topic, right? If you're driving an EV or not, you've heard about the fast charging infrastructure. I mean, maybe I'm also in this bubble all the time, as are you. So right. we hear about this every day and talk about it every day. But in contrast to the level two challenges that you were just speaking to, what are the distinct obstacles with DC fast charging, excuse me, um, that uh, utilities have to deal with? Well, I mean, I think for fast charging, there's a variety of challenges and there's also a bit of good news. And on the good news side of it, again, it's like, on one hand, this is just yet another customer load. So it's, you know, utilities are set up to do this. Now, the question comes for timing, like when, when and where are these, these, um, you know, charging stations going in and are they going in at the Bucky's? Are they going in at a, you know, a gas station? Or are they going in kind of on their own accord, you know, next to a, mm-hmm. you, know, you pick your favorite fast food chain or what have you. So there's, there's various things there. And like, what is the kind of surrounding utility infrastructure? You know, it's, again, utilities can pull power nearly anywhere, but it's going to mm-hmm. take a lot longer in a downtown urban area than it is like out in the middle of, you know, at the risk of staying the obvious out in the middle of a field, right? So that's next to a transmission line. So that's, I think that's the challenge. But again, that's, that's all largely, um, uh, that's, that's all over, you know, that can be overcome. Uh, one of the challenges I think is there's a variety of, there's a variety of, um, you know, private companies out there, there's a variety of models, you know, some of in, in utilities have done quite a few programs uh, supporting like all the behind the scenes infrastructure leaving the, the actually you know, like charging box or charging plaza to the responsibility of the site host or the shopping mall or, again, fast food restaurant or private charging network, what have you. So, but that doesn't stop the utilities from getting blamed when something goes wrong. So, I mean, that, that's just life. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that's also that's also another challenge, I would say, is the, um, is the PR. And then, like, taking a giant step back is, like, as people consider buying an electric vehicle, Utilities are asking themselves, well, what's our role in educating our customer on electric vehicles, the costs and benefits, and like, you know, um, the emotional benefits as much as the 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 the, the you know, quantitative ones. And then, you know, quickly, it's like, how do you get into fueling? Like, we're all used to, you know, putting gas or diesel into our car. That's a straightforward process, whether it's good or bad is another question. But having to explain to someone like, oh yeah, you charge, and then there's different prices and you know, time of use, and like that's just more than the average customer. Um, probably wants to hear i mean the way Mm -hmm. i talk about it is like you know you can buy you can buy food at the grocery store and that's a certain price and and a certain level if if you need it last minute or if you're out at the movies and you're um you're grabbing something from the snack bar you're gonna pay a different price but you're also paying for kind of the location or the specificity or the timing of it right so Hmm. that's kind of how electricity is in some in some ways yeah but again like you just don't want to make it too complicated we have enough complexity in our lives Yeah, I like that analogy. And I do think that is something that is unfortunately unavoidable, which at at this point in the EV transition is that you, I mean, you might pull up to a charger one day and get a slower charge than before. And you're like, why is this happening? But if you don't have, you know, the, the knowledge, the information to educate yourself, it might just be like, I don't know why but it wasn't a great experience, you know? And there's kind of the argument that we shouldn't have, not everyone should have to know all these nerdy details, but that is just where we are. So we keep a positive (laughs) perspective, right? Right. So with your, your work, you know, you've kind of said that you don't necessarily like tell entities what to do, uh, but instead just provide them with the information. But do, do utilities come to you and when you work with them and say, this is the problem we want to do, we want to put in more DC fast charging. How do we, how do we do it? Then what would be your response and how you work with them? Would it just be, well, here's our research. Interpret. No, no, that's like- ex- and we we actually have like that's a per- perfect example. So if they have like strategic questions, we have a set of product offerings and experts on the team that kind of help walk through them along with their strategic experts. Like, hey, this is our local, you know, wherever they are in the country. This is kind of our state and local and regional policy or lack yeah. thereof. This is our own internal strategy on what we want to do. So we kind of walk them through that. And then all the way to the point where it's like, you know, what are the literally costs and benefits of of either supporting or, you know, there's kind of a spectrum on of, of how much a utility is involved in charging infrastructure, right? Everything from supporting like any other electric load all the way up to owning and operating and maintaining. And then there's a bunch in the middle. So we have, we have specific offerings for that. We have, again, you know, technical experts on our team who have installed 
stations in the field, again, whether it's a parking lot or a fast charge. So they know, again, I talked about the standards folks. So we have, we have vehicle experts on our team. So like, whatever the question they have, we usually have an answer. And if we don't, then we're like, well, go talk to these folks over there at, you know, you name the organization or national lab, because that's their area of expertise. Like we have no, you know, it's how it works. Like we're all in this together, right? It takes a village. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. This is the space of collaboration. And if you're not collaborating, I don't know if you're really part of it. I mean, you're not going to benefit and there's just so much benefit to give out with that working together. And you mentioned something that kind of transitions into my next point, which is the role of regulation and policy. So of course we large scale have NEVI funding and that's some kind of regulation and federal incentives to build out the charging infrastructure. And then there's the collaboration of regulators and lawmakers. But like you were saying, some places don't have any policy regarding EV charging infrastructure and they're building it for the first time and their teams are working it with, with it for the first time. And then there's, you know, cities and states that have been kind of working in this for longer and have it built up. So what policy changes do you think could help improve the expand, expansion of any EV charging infrastructure, I don't know if it really becomes distinct between level two and fast charging, but yeah, what do you think there? I don't know about specific policies. And again, I can't really comment on policy, but I think, again, mm -hmm. at the risk of stating the obvious, one of the major opportunities right now that the entire industry is looking at is like, how do we ensure that the customer experience with public fast charging, especially because that's so critical, you know, especially now that the vehicles it used to be like the vehicles were regional, that's fine. So if something hiccuped, you could still get home because you weren't far from home. But now that we're, you know, I know Kyle and others have driven across the country a bunch of times, like <laughs> on EVs, like you could, like, if, if that station doesn't work, like that's a serious, serious problem. Right. And then yeah. that's even before you start thinking about fleets and goods and services. So how do you ensure that the customer fast charging experience is, I mean, there's so much focus before on time. Like, how much time does it take? And I kind of learned that, like, that's not really a problem. It's more about, like, how do you ensure it's reliable and easy, right? Exactly. I think and it works. And it works. So it's the ongoing, it's the customer experience coupled with the ongoing operations and maintenance. So that's, I would say, even bigger picture than any mm -hmm. one specific policy. But that's that's mm -hmm. a major thing. And then, you know, along the lines of the customer, customer experience, one might, you know, from the data anyway, looking at all the automakers, I think all have signed up now for NACS, right? Like, they all basically mm -hmm. say, like, okay, well, that wasn't working. So let's, let's take advantage. You know, you, people can say what they want about Tesla, but like their charging station, their charging network coupled with their car was a seamless experience. So the yeah. other OEMs took a look at that and decided that like, okay, well, we'll take you up on your offer to be part of it. Now there's going to be a bunch of work that's needed in between like, okay, we all have the same connector to like, we all have the same experience. So uh, lots of work to be yeah. done in the next few years. Yeah. That's the part <laughs> that, too. That mm -hmm. is, that is, you know, they, they, people were joking that the common, the, the common, the common, the common connector is just the key that unlocks the door. Now you got to open the door and go in and get the work done. Right. So um, exactly, a lot, lot of work there to, to go. So again, like going back to like what policies grow the market, it's, it's a combination of that, of, of having that infrastructure. And then again, I think the other gap in the market for the longest time was if you look at like the top 25 best selling vehicles in the U S which again are predominantly crossovers and SUVs and trucks, you know, the question that people ask is like, well, how many of those have either a plug-in option or a plug-in equivalent, right? Roughly mm -hmm. speaking. And for the longest time, there were great plug-ins on the market, but they kind of fell into two camps, you know, like city cars, city-ish cars, you know, local cars called yep. that. And then the the higher end, um, you know, kind of luxury sedans, right? Or luxury class sedans. And those were great if the customer was in the market for those. But if you wanted like a two row crossover there really weren't that many right no. and now the good news in the last couple of years is the more and more have come out in the market obviously that the electric pickup trucks have all made their um made largely made their launch and you know there's a plug-in hybrid one coming from ram next mm -hmm. next year i think so that'll be interesting to kind of see how that works out for the hardcore towers um anyway the point is, is like there's more and more customer choice now in the flavors of vehicles that we americans like so that will in mm -hmm. turn open up more customers that previously might not even been in the market. They might not have been anti-EV, but if there's just not a vehicle for them to purchase that plugs in, then they're just not going to consider it, right? So I think that that is some another change we're seeing in the market. So it's like it's something I know we as an institute are keeping, or we as a department are keeping a close eye on. Is like how how does that change and impact um, you know the vehicle choice, uh, expanded vehicle choice? How does that ex how does that translate to more adoption and then what does that adoption mean for charging behavior and mm -hmm. at the beginning like bigger vehicles more weight higher power charging level two does that 
what does that change, if anything, as far as, you know, basically bigger air conditioners coming onto the grid? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Interesting kind of ripple effect of figuring out where the origin of the the big like influence will come from. And it's true. We have more and more options on the market for an EV that can be adopted into your lifestyle that fits it. And are just like your gateway EV kind of. And I was even talking to someone where it'll be like someone's first EV will be the Cybertruck for, even though it's an insane piece of machinery or whatever, you know, that will be someone's introduction into the EV world because it's so weird. Like, or maybe it was the smart car, whatever it is, you got your way in. Um, do you, do you drive an EV? We have a, um, we've had a variety of EVs in our family, which have changed as we now have three kids. So we start off with the Fiat 500E, had an i3 with a range extender. Uh, right now, one of our, (laughs) we have an electric cargo bike that we use and we are, uh, we have a hybrid station wagon and we're in the market for an electric city car. So we'll see what the next one, the next one will be. Oh, do you have anything you're especially considering or waiting for? Uh, it looks like, um, my wife wants a Tesla and I'm more interested in like the mini, one of the, I think it's the mini Eastman or something along that line, but we, we need something small need need is in air quotes. We would need more <laughs> of a, like a city car. My, my yeah. wife really likes sedan, the sedan. I'm more of a hatchback person. So we'll, we'll kind of see how they know. But for right now, having um, the bike actually gets us around quite well. Uh, we're like, we live in a spot that has good public transit too. So that helps. So like nice. we drive, we walk, we bike. And I recognize having lived in the suburbs and having lived in rural areas, I get that like my, my, current, my current zip code is, is not reflective of much of the country. Yep. Uh, that is true. I mean, when it comes to getting around, it can really change based on where you are. And um, yeah, cool to hear that you've actually had a couple different EVs. So we'll we'll have to see what you two end up deciding on as your next one to welcome into the family. But one thing I definitely want to make sure we touch on is renewable energies. So uh, there's one issue with renewable energies, and that is that they're intermittent, right? Wind comes and goes, sun comes and goes. Uh, I mean, hydro, I guess you can manipulate that more on your own, but I want to talk to you about how this can maybe alleviate pressure on the grid. So in your research, have you found that we're moving towards renewable energy production and use in a way that will be able to support the EV transition? That's a great question. Those are two major trends, parallel trends going on, not the only two, but two major ones going on right now in the in the energy industry. Um, the amount of solar and all, excuse me, the amount of renewables and all of its diverse forms continues to increase, uh, just as the amount of EVs continue to increase. And, and again, going back to the good news, why EVs can be a quote unquote asset to the grid is they sit around parks. There's so many of them sit around parks so much. So with a little technology and kind of some thought laid into the, you know, kind of turning the EVs into a platform, they can be integrated into the grid. Again, first and foremost, got to meet customer needs. And secondly, be a grid asset, got to be crystal clear on that. But the the potential for EVs as as a grid asset is is um, is is very high, uh, especially at scale. So are we there today? No, like we're getting there. You know, there's different pilots and programs around the around the world that have looked at this and um, you know shown shown the potential. So now it's a question of like, okay, as the scales, what what needs to happen? What are the again kind of the minimum functionality and communication all in a cybersecurity mm-hmm. way that need to happen to integrate EVs into the grid? Mm, okay, so it, it could be a reality, but in, in order to create it, um, to create a realistic system or network that by design charges EVs like only based off of the excess renewable energy generation or really relies on renewable energy, it requires not only customer first thought, which we've harped on a lot and which totally makes sense, but all of the systems in place to make that happen. Is there, does, does that seem like I'm catching that yeah. well? Yeah, that's a good good way to summarize it. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, just thinking about like households like yours that have multiple EVs, I just always start thinking about all the little microgrids that we could make everywhere. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm a little uh, thinking of a utopia of renewable energies, but I do love to talk about that there is potential and we're on our way there. And like, from your perspective, you're like, yeah, we can get there. Maybe it's not today. Maybe it is technically today we could do some things, but that we're moving in that direction at least, which I love to hear. And of course, this space is, there's misinformation, right? It's misinformation out there around the EV space and the transition to electric. And with your years of experience and the research of you and your team on this industry, 
what would you want folks kind of to take away as where we are right now, or just kind of an idea about this space? What do you want folks to come away from this conversation with? I, first and foremost, is like there are EVs out there today and more coming in, in a variety of flavors that appeal to more and more of us as Americans, you know, so mm-hmm. there might be one out there for you. Um, I would say electric vehicles from the customer perspective, they, to many, you know, the feedback that many drivers say, like, they're just simply better. You know, you hear this from like diehard car, you know, car zealots who like grew up on carburetors and things like that. They're like, it's just, it's hard to beat the advantages of an electric motor. Instant yeah. torque, smooth, quiet, you know, zippy, like all that kind of like punchiness coupled with the, lux- you know, the luxury and, and, and stillness, you know, we've heard like, oh, some of the luxury brands, like that's been their reputation for decades. It's like more than adequate performance, you know, or, <laughs> you know, and, and, and luxury and, all, and it's like the electric motor just is just delivers that, you know, just from the pure yeah. factor, it's just kind of hard to touch. Right mm-hmm. now, granted, there's gonna be a portion of the population that, um, you know, they're, they're just not going to have to change. Right. And that's, that's okay. But for everyone else, there's, there's a lot of options out there and, and more coming. So I would say that's the first thing. The second thing is charging, um, can be as simple as installing a dryer outlet in where you park your car yeah, and then buy a box and you're done. You know, that's, that's as simple as kind of as, as you need it to be. And, um, there's a great, you know, great support network out there. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of information, um, online YouTube or, you know, things to read and things like that. So there's, there's a lot of help. So it's, um, a great on the, on the individual customer side, it's just like simply better. And that kind of dovetails into the commercial industrial side. So, um, there's also more and more options for fleet customers. Um, there's some articles this week on the early data from, from Amazon using the, you know, using the Rivian vans and what they've seen for charging levels. And, you know, in kind of a near use case, there's a uh, mm-hmm. NAFKEYS does this great run on less. They've, they've, they're interviewing and kind of um, quantifying different fleets that are demoing around the country that are, that are demoing uh, in the big electric trucks. And you'll, you'll hear everything from fleet managers to drivers. So the point is, is like, Dolls, remember this is this this change is going to be gradual, right? It's not as it's change in the past, whether it's to smartphones or flat screen TVs. Seems like it was instant, but it took time. And these are vehicles that are you know expensive that are, that are re, that aren't replaced that frequently, right? So it's going to take time. The, mm-hmm. the experience the of the vehicles is um, you know the feedback from the drivers again, whether it's been individual fleets, been great, and it's only going to get better. And that's thanks to a lot, a lot of hard work of people behind the scenes. Yeah. I love that. I love that. You know, I do, I don't mean to focus on all the challenges, but what I do, what I'm trying to do when I highlight those is like also, okay, we've acknowledged the challenges and this is how we're combating them because I know it's not, we're in a transition and a lot of what we're focusing on is like, how, how do we get from, how do we get to where we're going? So I think it's so cool that not only are you seeing true transition happening and that, you know, it's, it's, with the collaboration and then that you all can provide this independent research and voice and, you know, just um, collaboration with utilities. I mean, y'all have also a lot of facets at EPRI that you're working with to advance us for a better tomorrow, which I love that mission oriented, you know, um, um, foundation that you're on, but in order to move towards this electric future or a future where, you know, there's cleaner air and cleaner water and uh, all that, stuff and i i feel like yeah we truly could talk about so many aspects of this very complicated industry for a long time and i really yeah i I really appreciate your expertise and i think this is such an interesting part of it the energy because everyone uses energy every day and uh, we don't have to think about it but moving into this space of things becoming more electric, it's kind of like an art and a science of figuring out how we can make it so seamless, right? And so I think your work can obviously attribute to that as well. And it was great meeting other members of your team today. So I'm really glad that you you actually reached out to us at the podcast and, um, you know, we're like, hey, I, I listen, as you said, longtime listener, first time caller, which we love. And you speak of collaboration too. And we love to collaborate on the out of spec team. And I'm you know, I'm not an expert in most of what we cover, but I'm like gathering all this information and painting a clear and clear picture of where we stand today. And I really appreciate your time to come on and explain a lot of this to me. And hopefully we'll have you on again in the future. 
Yeah, I would love to. That'd be great. Thank you very much. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I would um, love to see your car line up, of course, and <laughs> see, see what you all end up uh, going with. But also, if we ever come out to where you are or uh, have any other collaboration that we could do, I would love to do that. I'm sure our audience will have questions for you in the comments as well. So I'll, I'll encourage those and um, we'll see if we can get any uh, answers for them. But also, is there any work that you all are working towards in 2024 that you want to share with me that we can keep an eye out for? I think the big thing is um, what, what we mentioned at the beginning is like that, that giant initiative, the EVs to scale 2030, like that is just a huge collaborative with you know everything from Freightliner and Daimler and Amazon and a bunch of other fleets and the national labs and the joint office and you know um, close to two dozen different utilities really trying to get at that like where are these major loads coming on the transportation side in the next yeah. gosh 2030 is not that far away you know like six years which is a blink of an eye in the utility world and like how can you know how do we get that data again protected such that utilities can quickly and precisely invest today such that they're meeting the loads of tomorrow so that's really excited for that project and again that you know, I just listed off a bunch of different folks there and my apologies for whoever I missed, but really excited at that. Cause I think that will be an extremely useful and practical um, solution amongst the portfolio solutions that the industry needs. Man, you're kind of trying to predict the future there. Yeah. Well, doing the best we can based on data. So that's, that's, that's the, that's the goal. <laughs> we love that. We love our data over here. This has been so great to speak with you, Dan. I really, really do appreciate it and find this so interesting. And I really want to keep going into this topic of energy, how we make it, where it comes from, how we're going to use it and what are the innovative ways that we're trying to make a closed loop in this sector and then all, all the different markets. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. Thanks. Have a great afternoon. Thank you. And thanks everyone for tuning into the Out of Spec podcast. We will catch you next time. Bye.